0: Welcome to the newest episode of Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. I'm your host, Jason Fraley, picking the brains of the top filmmakers, musicians, and artists of our time. Chicago brings its Rock and Roll Hall of Fame horn section to MGM National Harbor this Friday. I spoke with guitarist Keith Howland about the band's biggest hits, including 25 or 6 to 4, Hard to Say I'm Sorry, and You're the Inspiration. Hey, Keith, thanks so much for joining us here on WTOP.
1: Hey, man, it's great to be here. I gotta say... Uh... WTOP was probably the first uh, radio station I became aware of as a young child because uh, I was born right there in Silver Spring. And uh, so, uh, yeah, I remember my dad always listening to WTOP.
0: I had no idea you were a local guy. So real quick, memory, tell me about growing up in Silver Spring. You know, what high school?
1: Uh, well, actually, I left before high school. I was there probably for... Uh, 12 years, I went to, uh, uh, I originally lived on a street called Arvin Street right there in uh, I guess Silver Spring, and then we wound up in a neighborhood called Stonegate, and I went to Stonegate Elementary, Um, but uh, the, the things I remember more about uh, that sort of D.C. area was uh, uh, Wheaton Music Center, which is where I got my first guitar, which is a little music shop in Wheaton, Maryland. And then uh, uh, Chuck Levins, you know, Washington Music Center right there, the big one, was where I got most of my, uh, you know, my first Les Paul, I got there, my first Marshall I bought there. And actually, when we we go there, I think I'm gonna cruise over to Washington Music Center just to kinda, for nostalgia purposes, and just uh, check it out, because it's been a long time since I've been in there, and I'm sure actually, probably some of the same salesmen are still there from, uh, you know, 40 years ago. So, uh, you know, that's a family run business. So uh, I want to, I might go check it out.
0: Oh, you should definitely do the old nostalgia tour while you're here for sure. (laughs) Well, um, we're, we're talking because Chicago, you know, the, the hit rock and roll hall of fame band, Chicago is coming to MGM national Harbor on October 8th. Um, where, what can we expect from the show? You know, it's, I guess, I assume it's all the, the hits and, and I guess the second part of that, it's got to be exciting to be back touring again after the last year and a half of COVID stuff.
1: Yeah. you know what? It's pretty cool because um, uh, we started, I think our first show was on June 20th um, and we started with the uh, big outdoor uh, venues uh, uh, kind of up and around New York, New Jersey. We were at uh, Jones beach and, PNC and Garden State Arts Center and some of those different venues and and um we were literally for like the first week of our tour the first six or seven shows were the first show those venues had had back since COVID shut them down so it was a really kind of a cool um because you could tell the audiences were really into being back seeing live music but also just being the first band in each one of those venues was really a, a cool thing. So, and we're doing a full, uh, you know, it's, it's Chicago and their greatest hits. We're doing, um, it's over two hours of music with a 20 minute intermission. So, uh, you know, we're, we're pretty much hitting every nail on the head, so to speak.
0: Oh well, with the number of hits Chicago had, I mean, it's not hard to put together, you know, a couple of hours of music. That's easy. Um, well, cool, cool. Well, so I mean, you mentioned growing up in, in Silver Spring. Um, you know, were you a big fan? Because obviously, you didn't join Chicago till what, like nine, 1995 or something like that. Were you Were you a right. fan? You know, you know, growing up as a kid or anything of Chicago's early stuff?
1: Absolutely. Um, I distinctly remember. Um, my older brother, who's four years older than I am, um, and he's a drummer, and he was uh, taking drum lessons, I think, at Wheaton Music. Um, and his drum instructor sent him home with uh, transcriptions of Danny Serafin's drum parts from Chicago 2, the second album. And so he brought home that album because he was going to learn all the drum parts. And... Uh, um you know i had heard you know does anybody really know what time it is and maybe beginnings on the radio a couple times probably on WTOP. (laughs) (laughs) but uh but he brought that record home and and we sat in his bedroom um he bought it in quadraphonic stereo so he had the four speakers you know quadraphonic which is so it's like surround sound and we just Mm -hmm. sat in the middle of the room and and listen to that whole album. And I remember we we were just, we were blown away, you know, we'd never heard anything like it. And uh, so, uh, you know, our parents started uh, facilitating us going to Chicago concerts. Um, Funny story, my first Chicago concert was, I think, 1975 at the Capitol Center there in DC. And uh, Terry Kath was still alive and so it was the original lineup and uh, so we go to the concert and we're sitting there and about halfway into the concert I- I'm I'm scratching my face and I'm, I'm itching and the people in the row in front of us this was back in the uh, days when people actually would pass a joint around at a concert <laughs> and uh, you know the pot smoke was coming up and like hitting me in the face and uh, I was you know, 10 years old, eight or nine years old. And by the time the concert was over, my whole face was swollen, red, um, itchy. And my mother said to me, you know, now let that be a lesson to you. Never smoke marijuana because you're allergic to it, obviously. Well, I proved that theory long, uh, wrong when I got into college, but, uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh i apparently i'd gotten into some uh poison ivy in the in the woods uh, behind our house <laughs> prior to the concert and gotten it on my face so uh i thought that was kind of a funny thing she used that as a deterrent to smoking marijuana
0: so a memorable first chicago show <laughs> and um, through
1: all that though they were unbelievable and cherry caps was amazing and uh uh and to sort of extend that story, as far as my upbringings in the uh, D.C. area, um, you know, we we most of the concerts I saw in the D.C. area were at Meriwether Post Pavilion. Um, I saw the Carpenters there. I saw uh, the Doobie Brothers. I saw Santana. I saw Brian Adams. I saw, I mean, all these different groups and. And um, my first year with the band in 95, we played Meriwether Post Pavilion. And um, obviously, I saw Chicago there several times. Um, And uh, that was kind of a trip to have sort of come full circle and be in the backstage area with my family in the audience at Meriwether Post, taking the stage with the band that I grew up going to see you know at the very same venue so that was kind of a kind of a pinch me moment
0: that is wild like you said you went you literally went to Meriwether this institution in this area to see Chicago and not knowing you know your kid eyes not knowing (laughs) that you would be standing on that same stage with that same band at that same venue that is that's a great full circle moment um well cool well um we sort of went into, you know, your earliest experiences with the band, but um, if you could, you know, just, just through your fellow band members, you know, maybe telling you the story, you know, passing down the info, remind us how, how did the band actually form in, in Chicago back in the day? I guess it was like 67, I think.
1: Yeah. I mean, uh, I'm pretty much uh, privy to that story. They were uh, all the horn guys were students at DePaul university. Um, and uh, trying to remember terry Kath, danny seraphin and uh walt perizader were in a band together um and they actually toured i believe with uh like a dick clark um some type of dick clark review some type of show when they were teenagers and uh and then they decided walt decided that he thought would be a good idea to put, put together a, a rock and roll band with horns and originally Terry Kath was actually playing bass guitar um, but he switched over to guitar and I think Walt re- recruited Jimmy Pankow and Lee Lockname from his buddies at DePaul to form the horn section um, and then uh, and Danny was there Peter Sotera came in a little bit late in the game Um, They found Robert Lamb, Robert Lamb came in, um, they auditioned him, he came in with a whole notebook full of song lyrics, and so Robert already had a bunch of songs written. So they thought that was cool. And uh, so originally, it it was the six guys and Robert was playing Hammond organ and actually playing the bass notes with his feet, you know, kicking bass pedals. And then they decided, well, we need to find a bass player um so there was a rival band in in the chicago area called uh oh gosh i can't remember what the name of the thing was because they called themselves the big thing and then peter was in a different group and i can't remember the name of it but they went and saw him and they recruited him and he jumped ship and joined them um big big huge bonus though was they got a bass player that could sing his butt off you know i mean Sotara's voice was like uh when they heard him sing, you know, the high tenor thing that just rounded out the whole, the whole ball of wax for the group. And so they started playing clubs around uh, Chicago and mostly they were kind of a, you know, I don't want to call them a supper club band, but they were like a, you know, they were wearing suits and ties and doing like choreographed dance moves and playing like Motown and, and they were writing their own material, but they would try to sneak the songs in and the club owners would, would come down on them and say like you know you can't play that can't play that original music you know you got to stick to the stuff that that makes the people dance so they would so they kind of stuck to the story and then the as Jimmy told me when Sergeant Peppers came out the Beatles record they all uh, they all dropped acid and listened to Sergeant Peppers (laughs) and the very next day they, they they declared you know, forget this. We're not doing these cover tunes anymore. We're going to do our own thing. I think Terry Kath literally like ripped his suit off on stage, as, you know, legend has it. <laughs> and they did the entire night of nothing but their original material. And the club owner came up and tried to shut him down. And apparently, Robert Lamb. Dove off the stage and jumped on the guy and started like a fist fight. <laughs> a fist and then of course, fight? they of course they were fired. Um, so then, you know, at at that point, they 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 went forward. You know, we are we are a legitimate original music rock band, and that's all we're going to do. And they, you know, they they got discovered by uh, I guess it was a. Uh, Jim Garcia, I think it was either Jim Garcia or Clive Davis <clears throat> I think it was Garcia who brought him out to LA and then they started playing at the Whiskey you know, every week and building a following and then Jimi Hendrix came in and heard him and invited him to come on the road with him to open the show
0: Oh, they opened for that- Hendrix on the road? I didn't know that.
1: Oh, yeah that was kind of the big that was the big exposure moment they hadn't even—I don't even think they'd released their first album yet—and and Hendrix took them on the road, so they opened for Hendrix, and that that got them a lot of exposure. You know, in the really early days, Chicago was like—they uh, were considered sort of a kind of an underground prog rock. You know, um, you know the college kids loved them, you know, because they were sort of edgy and political and proggy and you know not mainstream right so you know so that's kind of how that all got going and then uh you know the rest is history um really wasn't until the second album though that they they broke huge which was uh when make me smile came out as as a single um you know they had had moderate success with the the hits from the first album but when make me smile became such a huge song um the uh, columbia records re-released beginnings does anybody really know what time it is question 67 and 68 and then those songs became even bigger because uh you know of the you know the pull of make me smile
0: wow wow thanks for taking me through that whole formation evolution. And I, I didn't know they opened for Hendrix. I didn't know they got kicked out of the club and jumped off the stage in the fist fight. That, that's gold. Thanks, man. <laughs> um, Cool. Well, um, you know, you brought us to the point where they you know, where Chicago is, is, uh, is signed and um, let's run through some, some of the hits. Um, How about, does anybody really know what time it is? You said that was one of the first ones you remember here as a kid, but um, man, what do you think makes that song work?
1: Well, one of the magical things about it was, um, that literally is the very first song that the band recorded in the studio. Um, So, these guys were basically just kids, teenagers. I think uh, Jimmy must have been probably 18 maybe when they cut that song because he's the youngest of the original four. Well, the original Danny was younger than, uh, Danny might have been 17. But anyway, so that was a song that Robert had that was was kind of an intact song, I guess, uh, that he brought to the band. And that was the very first song they cut um, when they went into Columbia Studios in New York City, you know, and they were like deer in the headlights, you know, as they have told me, you know, that they were like, uh, it was all new to them. They were in the city and they were in the studio and they'd never been in the studio. And you know, the red light came on and, and, you know, that was a uh, eight track recording. So there wasn't a lot of room for error, in other words, uh, not eight track, like the one that goes in your car, but like eight track uh, tape machine, you know, in other words, you had eight tracks of recording to, to get your, get, get your song together the Beatles did a lot of their stuff on four track, which is even, you know, harder. Now you can have unlimited tracks with pro tools cause it's all digital. So you can have a hundred tracks of information. So in other words, they had to commit to drum sounds, horn sounds because once it was recorded, a lot of stuff was already pre-mixed, you know, to, to make it all fit on that eight track uh, tape recorder. But, uh, but yeah, you know, I mean, that song, we play it every night. I've probably played it 2,500 times now, uh, if not more, with the band. And uh, it never it never gets old. It never gets tired. People always like it. I still like playing it. There's something about that sort of swing feel that, that it has that uh, I just think, uh, I don't know people people actually get up and dance to that one um
0: 25 or six to four i love that song it's i think it's one of the coolest songs ever but so, solve the argument over what the title means is it is it literally just 25 or 26 minutes to four o'clock is that what it is
1: that's exactly <laughs> what it is if you read the lyric um robert lamb was sitting in his apartment i believe in new york city and he was trying to write a song and uh, so he was uh he was waiting for the break of day searching for something to say you know flashing lights against the sky that would be new york you know giving up i closed my eyes sitting cross-legged on the floor what is it 25 or six minutes to four in the morning is basically what that was um so it's it's a song about writing a song and it's getting really late and he feels like he's kind of stuck at. at and has nothing to say so what he found to say was that he was writing a song and he was stuck and that became uh you know and the time of day it was when he was feeling sort of uh stuck and, Thanks and for, the funny go ahead go ahead yeah i mean you know a lot, a lot of people uh think uh, oh well you know it's the it's the formula for acid or it's you know it's some drug reference or and it's as simple as that and just just goes to show you that you just never know what, I kind of liken it a little bit to like, uh, I heard on the radio just the other day, uh, Phil Collins song, Susudio. Oh yeah. Right? So the story behind that was is that Phil was writing, the, writing this song and when he got to the chorus, he just sang something that sounded phonetically interesting. Su Su studio, you know, and he was like, you know, I'll, 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 I'll change that later and put something real in there that makes sense, you know, and once he finished the song, he was kind of like, oh, I kind of like that, you know, it's, it's almost, like, or earth, wind and fire, you know, body, uh, dancing in September, body, uh, what is, you know the the one of the, one of the outside songwriters was like, well, we've got to replace body ah with something that actually makes sense. And the you know Maurice White was like, no, I like it. You know, it sings well.
0: Those placeholder but- lyrics become the real ones once you get used to it.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, I mean, not that w- what Robert wrote was nonsensical, but it was it was re- literally just uh, like you say a song about writing a song and a reference to the time of day. Um, You know, a lot of people are disappointed when they find out that that's what it is because they want something deeper, but.
0: uh, Well, thanks for clarifying that. I mean, I, based on what he's talking about, you can tell it's about the time of day. So, but, but what always made my brain hurt was (laughs) I thought it was like, you know, six six to four, I'd be like, wait a minute, that's like 22, not 25 hours. Like, you know what I mean? I was trying to do the math and it made, I'm right. sure it made a lot of people's heads hurt. So thanks. It's 25 or 26 minutes to four. Thank you for clarifying. Um, Cool. Saturday in the park. Uh, that, that was always a little, kind of a bouncy, bowie, catchy one. But uh, why, why do you think that one was such a hit?
1: Um, Again, I, I you know, Robert just had a back for uh, coming up with sort of hooky, um you know i've always told him you know you you do your best work when you just sit down at the piano and just start banging around and that's sort of the way he uh you know saturday was you know he had a little room where he where he wrote and he sat down at the piano and a tape recorder and he you know that riff came out and uh and uh so that's sort of how that the genesis of that song was and I think he was still living in New York and probably was looking out his window at Central Park and uh, and uh, there came that song and uh, trying to remember what the Motown tune was, there's a tune that even he admits that he loose, loosely based kind of the, the feel of that song and I think it might have been uh, might have been Mustang Sally and if you think about the feel of of uh, the rhythm section in Mustang Sally um, alongside of Saturday in the park. You know, they're, they're not similar songs, but just the kind of the groove. So he was going for something that was potentially again, going to make people want to get up and kind of dance and clap their hands. And we see that every night.
0: Love it. It's a cool song. All right. And how, and then the ultimate, like, you know, apology song, hard to say i'm sorry um uh is there a better apology song ever
1: <laughs> probably not i mean that's a good one um you know that was a saterra david foster thing and um you know that was the song literally that put uh, that put essentially another era onto the career of chicago you know the band uh suffered Terry Kath's death in 1977. Um, 77 or was it January, was it 78? I should know that. Um, But then, uh, you know, they made a couple records in the middle there, after Gersio departed producing the band and after Terry uh, passed away. And they didn't really have a lot of commercial success. And then 1981, I guess it was, entered David Foster um who was coming off of uh what had he done he'd done a couple things for the tubes he'd produced bill champlin's solo stuff um and they went in the studio and uh him and satara hit it off and they uh they wrote that song and it became i guess a number one single and launched basically the 80s era of chicago which also of course included uh you're the Inspiration, Hard Habit to Break, uh, um, Along Comes a Woman, Stay the Night, Love Me Tomorrow, so it's kind of cool, you know, we kind of have, it's literally like, um, there's the 70s era and the 80s era that we can draw upon for uh, hit songs, which is kind of cool.
0: Oh, absolutely, you know? and I remember, and and it's funny, you mentioned those 70s and 80s eras, but then... Uh, come the 90s, which full disclosure, when I when I was growing up, um, they brought back hard to say, I'm sorry, I think it, uh, what Babyface remixed it for as yet as an R&B tune and Cetera I think was like, I think David Foster might have put Cetera on like a remix or something but uh, that, yep. that so those songs are timeless um but you mentioned a couple of them, but tell me about you're the inspiration too tell me about you know if hard to say i'm sorry is like the ultimate apology song you're the inspiration is like the ultimate like you know i love you here here's why i love you song you're the inspiration but why do you think it works so well
1: well you know what? of the, the uh the truth behind you're the inspiration was um <clears throat> kenny rogers was actually making a record and uh and Peter and David Foster got together and said, you know, Hey, do you want to want to try to write a tune for uh, Kenny Rogers new record? So they went to the studio and they wrote, you're the inspiration and Satara sang it. And they sent it to Kenny Rogers who declined to record the song.
0: Come on, he Kenny. Said, I'll be like Kramer, Kenny.
1: <laughs> I know. So he was like, uh, yeah, he he didn't didn't want the tune. And uh, so basically what's on the record uh, is essentially the demo that they cut to present to uh, Kenny Rogers. And um, it wound up on the Chicago album and it wound up being a huge hit. So they were right about the song and Kenny, uh, missed out on one there. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, it's a very, uh, straight up, you know, love song. I
0: wonder That's if Kenny a- Rogers was ever kicking himself that Chicago- <laughs> watching Chicago climb the charts with that one. Uh, I think he did okay. I think he was all right. Rest in peace, gambler. Uh, all right. Maybe time for one more. Will you still love me? That one always comes to mind of hearing it constantly on the radio, you know, growing up in the eighties as well. But, um, any good fun stories on the making of Will You Still Love Me?
1: Well, I mean, the only fun story about Will You Still Love Me would be that uh, <clears throat> that was obviously the, uh, that, that was the first hit uh, post-Peter Cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, the first thing they released off of Chicago 18, which was the record they did with David Foster, but with Jason Chef on vocals, um, instead of Peter, the first thing they released was a remake of 25 or 64. And, and the, the reception to that was not great because, you know, sometimes if it ain't broke, you don't fix it. You know, 25 or 64 is such a classic song and the record is so well known that uh, people didn't really want to hear it. So that kind of went away and then they, released uh will you still love me and i believe i don't remember what what chart uh i don't think it went to number three maybe on the pop charts
0: i'm seeing numbers th- whatever list i have which who knows but <laughs> if it's right but it says number three on the billboard
1: hot 100 yeah well there you go then i did know my my history impressive <laughs> but the interesting thing about it was um so, simultaneous with Chicago releasing um, or recording their record, Peter Cetera was overdoing his first solo album. Right, right. right. And, <clears throat> and um, according to Jason, uh, David Foster, their producer, got a hold of a, uh, a mix, uh, a rough mix of The Glory of Love. Which was going to be Satera's first single.
0: Right.
1: So he he came into the studio and played it for the guys and says, This is what we've got to beat. And played them the Gloria Love. And they all looked at each other and went, Whoa, you know, this is going to be a huge hit. And it was. It was a number one record. It, it was. Uh, <clears throat> so Will You Still Love Me was kind of their response to uh, uh, Gloria Love. And, you know, both songs were huge. And, both did really well and so you know it was all uh, all good in the hood at that point but uh but yeah i don't remember i can't remember the songwriters on that they were i, th- I think they were both outside writers on will you still love me if i'm not mistaken
0: it says um it says david foster tom keen and richard baskin but yes I- you're, you're right notable for satara leaving and then uh, jason chef as lead vocals yeah
1: yep I, I remember when I bought um, at the time I was living in Richmond, Virginia and I remember I remember when Zotara left and I was kind of like, oh boy, you know this is huge um, and I I went out and I bought Chicago 18 on vinyl and I, I brought it home and I put the record on and I think the first song on the record is a song called Niagara Falls <clears throat> and I heard Jason's voice on there and you know, He had this really high tenor, you know, very present tenor voice. And I went, wow, I think they're going to be okay. It sounds like they found a guy, you know, and uh, so it was kind of cool.
0: I just think it's cool that unlike other bands, you know, that they kept naming it you know, Chicago 18. I mean, I guess you had like you know Led Zeppelin 4, there was some precedent, but um, you know instead of actual album titles, I thought it's always cool that they just kept it going, Chicago with with the numer- numeric. I think that's really that's special. Um, cool. Well, I mean, that sort of brings us to present day then. So then you join them in 95 and uh, how, I guess let's end there. How did you get the call to actually join them? Like were you, were you pinching yourself?
1: <laughs> well, <laughs> I didn't get the call. Um, so the the i've told this story probably a million times so i'm going to give you the cliff notes version a little bit but uh thank you you for million and one right here it's kind of a kind of long a long story but so i was living in la and i had uh i had done i had done a year with rick springfield and i had worked with a jazz saxophonist named warren hill and I was in Olivia Newton John's band for about a week. Um, but she w- was diagnosed with breast cancer and, and had to cancel her tour. So I was, I was, basically kind of sitting home out of work. You know, I had done a few things, but I was, uh, essentially unemployed and I was looking for work. And so I, was, I started making phone calls. And <clears throat> one of the phone calls I made was to a friend of mine named Dave Friedman, who, uh, who at the time was a, an amplifier repair guy. And his shop was inside of a rehearsal studio in North Hollywood called Third Encore. And I said, Dave, I said if, uh, if you ever hear, you know, most bands audition musicians in a rehearsal studio. So, and he worked in, in one. And I said, well, if you ever hear, hear of anybody looking for anybody, I'm looking for a gig, and uh, I got a phone call from him about a month later, and he said, hey, um, Chicago is down here auditioning guitar players today, and uh, and I went, today? Couldn't you give me a little more advance warning? And he's like, "He go, I, I just found out about it, and I was like, whoa. So I tried to call their management, and they basically blew me off, said you know we got eight guys we're listening to it's a closed audition sorry you know and uh, so I was sitting in my my uh, in my house drinking a cup of coffee and I was like what am I going to do now I was like that that would be the perfect gig for me but how can I get them to listen to me I (laughs) I threw all my gear in my car and I drove down to third encore and I got I parked in the parking lot and I just essentially waited for the guys to show up um they weren't there yet and uh one by one i saw the guys walk into the rehearsal studio and i was like i can't talk to robert lamb i can't talk to jimmy Pankow. i can't talk to walt perizader i can't talk to lee lock Lockman. they're gonna just tell me to go home kid you know and i don't know those guys And the rest of the guys champlin walked in and tris walked in and the last guy to show up and I found out later that that was always the case was Jason chef. And I had actually met Jason once. Um, he had poked his head into a, a rehearsal studio where I was playing with a, a kind of an original band project. And he knew the drummer. And I had actually said to him, you know, I was like, wow, man, you know, great to meet you. I love Chicago. If you guys ever need a guitar player, I'm your guy kind of jokingly right not knowing that later on they'd be looking for somebody so when jason got out of his car i jumped out of my car and went over and said hey man do you remember me i was in that band with sergio you know your buddy who was playing drums and he kind of was like uh i'm not really And i was like that ah, was like three or four months ago you don't remember and he goes well maybe and i said man i'd really like an opportunity to audition and he said well give me your number. Let me see what I can do. And I guess he thought about it. And he wound up uh, calling me. And he had talked the guys into uh, extending an extra day to listen to me. And so uh, I went down. I played six songs. Last one was 25 or six to four. Uh, uh, Soon as song ended. The band called a band meeting out in the hallway and left me in the room alone. And uh, they came back in and they offered me the gig. So that was, uh, that's how that happened. You know, I, uh, I almost, you know, hung up the phone and poured another cup of coffee and waited for the next opportunity. But I just thought, man, I can't let this pass me by. I'm going to have to at least, I'm going gonna to have to go outside my comfort zone a little bit you know, and try to, try to make, will this to happen. And it did. So uh, that's my story and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> well,
0: you made Silver Spring proud for sure. And uh, you know, and coming full circle with Meriwether and all the local connections, you made us proud, sir. Um, cool. Well, thanks so much for joining us. This, you've been really generous with your time. Um, wait, actually real quick. I, so when the band goes in, in the rock hall of fame in 2016, then you've been playing with them for like, over a decade or even almost two at that point um close to, yeah, close two deck, to 20, year. 21 years or something at that point so how does that work like so they obviously i guess they just induct the standard as they induct the original members but then you're like hey hey guys like I, i've been here for 20 years where
1: do i get to go up on stage <laughs> well you know that's always been a bone of contention with a lot of bands going into the rock hall because uh right. um you know even jason chef who actually had who was with the group for 30 years and actually had several hit songs with the group wasn't inducted right uh, they're very much about the original band members that created the original music in the early stages of, of a band's formation getting inducted haven't seen too many <clears throat> i believe michael mcdonald got inducted with the doobie brothers i guess they they deemed that his impact was significant enough um, to warrant that, but
0: you don't see like there- a Sammy Hagar with Van Halen kind of a deal.
1: Well, yes. Or Sammy did he Gar- go
0: in with them? No, I don't think he did.
1: He didn't. I don't, I'm not sure. I don't know.
0: That's a good question.
1: I don't know. He should have. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they were more successful with Sammy than, than Dave. I'm looking it
0: up right now in real time during this interview. <laughs> uh, yes, no, you are right. He he did go in with them as well. Yep, he did.
1: So it was Sammy, Dave, Eddie, Alex, and Michael. And that's it. Yeah. Uh, it was uh, Sammy,
0: Eddie, David Lee Roth, Michael Anthony, and Alex Van Halen. Yep right so now so, we're getting into the weeds on something that like just this morning todd rundgren was like yeah i'm going in but i don't care it's all about the music and so and here we go deep into the woods on <laughs> on another band but i think it's fun talking music
1: <laughs> yeah you know the rock hall is kind of a, a thing that uh you know a lot of artists have uh mixed feelings about it um some have sort of reluctantly gone in and some gladly accepted the honor Just based on those kind of things alone, like I know a couple of couple of bands felt really, uh, you know, like they had members in their groups that were in their band for like forty years, but the those guys weren't inducted, and they're kind of like, really, you know, this guy is just as important as, you know, Bob who was in the band for three years, but you want to put Bob in because he was in the original lineup, you know, or whatever. I'm just being hypothetical, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Definitely. So it's kind of uh, it's kind of, you know it's kind of hit and miss there.
0: Exactly. But either way, regardless of the accolades, it's really cool that Chicago um has been around for so long and stuck around and it's still fresh in everyone's minds with all the hits over all the years. And you've been a big part of that for, for the last several decades. So congrats on that. Thanks for doing Silver Spring Pro. <laughs> and uh, everyone check out chicago at mgm national harbor on october 8th hey thanks for doing this this was a blast
1: hey man no problem i appreciate uh, you having me jason
0: thanks so much for joining us on beyond the fame with jason fraley remember to hit the subscribe button and give us a five-star rating if you like what you hear we'll see you next time